Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Venture Property Podcast, and thank you very much for listening. Regular listeners will know that this month has all been about the month of finance, and I've had some really great interviews with people from Property Finance on. And this is the last one for the, this month. Today, as always, we are sponsored by the Real Estate Slackers. Now, the Real Estate Slackers is a free Slack group which was created by myself and John Corey because I believe that everybody needs a bit of JC in their lives. And you can get access to this group at realestateslackers.com and it is a group of like-minded property people. So, straight into today's episode then, guys. I have an incredible property person today. Absolutely incredible. One of the best people I have ever met at getting into the mind of an investor and showcasing what they want. And I would like to now welcome Thomas from Century Spaces. Hi, Thomas. How are you doing today? Hi, Ryan. Thank you very much. That's a very uh, uh, elaborate intro. It's <laughs> very true. I mean, I know that having spent some time with you and I've seen some of the proposals you've put together, they are incredible. You have this ability to tell a story while answering questions and making it not about it is about figures but it's more it's deeper than that when i look at that i mean i'm a marketer and i see stories in everything and the way that you present things is fantastic brilliant thank you very much <laughs> well it's very true i mean i try to model things that you do on what i do so why don't you tell the audience and the people listening how it was that you came to get involved in property yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, for my wife and I, the property is a ten-year journey towards replacing salary with um, with passive income. Basically, it came when we had our first son, our first child, our son Alexander, five years ago. When we started, we basically did a twenty-year plan and said, "What, what, what kind of money do we need to uh, to lead the lifestyle we want?" And then you see that's quite a big figure and you realize, okay, well, you can probably do that in the corporate world if you want to, uh, but it means you'll be working all the time or, or quite a lot more than we were willing to. So we started looking around for another way of, of getting the lifestyle we want without necessarily compromising on the uh, work-life balance that we want. And, uh, and property is a, is a very nice asset class for that. Um, so yeah, so that's how we got started about five years ago. Wow. And then just a little bit about your background in the, in the world, because I know that you've got a pretty impressive CV. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the, the, the short version is that I, I'm a computer scientist by background. Uh, I have a master's in, in computer science and I did a software startup for about five years with venture capital and all that stuff. So very high pressure, very intense. Uh, then in, in 2009, I joined a high-tech incubator where we were working with very, very small uh, tech companies. And then from there, I went into Bain & Company, which is one of the tier one strategy consulting houses, where basically we're doing strategy for FTSE 50 companies and figuring out what they should be doing, how they should be going about it. Uh, and then I spent quite a lot of time in the private equity ring fence, which is a small group of the company that does only uh, commercial due diligence for private equity uh, houses across Europe. Um, and and having spent a good time there, it, I thought it was a good move to move into private equity. So I spent uh, two years in, in in the private equity space, which is basically about uh, investing and buying and selling companies, basically buying and building and selling companies. Mm -hmm. And that was a good intro to uh, to moving into the property space. 
Mm. I know that looking at the way that that you sort of analyze and you set up deals, I know that you've got this this framework. Um, did some of that come from your previous life? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a it's a it's a tested and and, and true uh, method, um, and it, it comes from from where it was a banking company where we we did, I think. As I recall, it was something like 40% of all European private equity transactions went through that group and um, over, over, over a certain size. And basically, once you get into that way of thinking, there's a certain mechanical way or framework which you can apply to pretty much any, uh, any investment decision. Um, and, and of course, uh, having learned that framework, it makes sense to bring it into property where it is equally uh, applicable and powerful. Mm-hmm. I love the word mechanical. I really yes. like that because it's uh, well. That when I'm with my Betfair trading, it's the markets move mechanically. They move all all markets move the same, and it is a mechanical process. I really like. I just like yeah. thinking about that. But I'm going off topic. Um, shall we? Well, actually, before we jump into it, I think it is quite an important point to to think about it as mechanical because. Most people will think of due diligence as being some sort of um, magical knack that you pick up and that you you have the knack for doing due diligence, but that's not it at all. It is very mechanical and it is about following a process. And when you follow a process, it becomes it becomes much faster and much more precise as you go along. So you can turn it into a into something you can do on all the projects you look at, and you can do it quite quickly once you get into mm-hmm. the habit of it. It's also a system as well, isn't it? Exactly. You follow that same system over and over and over again. Exactly. Um, it reduces the the risk and it reduces the ability to make a mistake because you follow that process. You've got a set process and a set rules. One of the things that I'm always pushing to my members on my, my trading website is to have a trading plan and to basically do the due diligence process every single day and then follow your plan. Yeah, and that is really tough for a lot of people to get their head around. You know, well, it's hard to do. It goes against human nature a little bit, right? <laughs> Massively. It took me a long time to to be able to fight those emotions of trading and risking money because, it would, like you say, it's against human nature. We're not programmed to do that, are we? Yeah. No, I, I think I think uh, I think we are programmed to intuit answers rather than to to follow structure i think it's that thinking fast and thinking slow paradigm uh, was that daniel kahneman or something like that yeah. wrote that book um, i think it's that same paradigm at play here yeah i think you are completely right and i'm already so excited talking <laughs> to you <laughs> i just i just really like the way that that your brain works and the way that other people from the sort of similar backgrounds to you, their brains work, because that's exactly the same that the way that my brain has worked. And I haven't been exposed to that until the last few years because it was just me trading. And then, yes, I had members on my website, but they didn't have this same, the same mindset and the same mechanical approach to it. And I never, I keep going back to it, but I never put the trading mindset and then the sort of investing mindset together until till recently. So yeah. I get I really like speaking to people from private equities background, etc. etc. Because the thought process is exactly the same. And it's good for me to be able to geek out. 
especially yeah. with another computer science person. <laughs> Definitely. But I know, and I've bigged up this framework now, and we're going to go through this framework over this podcast. So literally anybody, there'll be no excuse for anybody listening to not be able to set up a deal. So, Thomas, are you ready? Absolutely. Shall we start with step number one, which is what you would have to believe? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so so going into any project, you have some assumptions and you have some some ideas of what is it that you're going to get out of this project. Um, now, most most sort of at the very highest level, you'll think about, okay, well, I want to generate a certain return in a certain time frame. So you, let's say you want a 20% uplift on cost and you want to do it in less than 18 months. Well, uh, that that's too generic, right? So you got to think a little bit more than that. And so, so you basically work down from there and say, well, okay, well, in order for me to do that, what would I have to, what would have to happen for me to be able to do that? Well, first of all, if, if we take a, a, an example, you'd have to get planning permission and you'd have to complete the build on budget and within the time frame. All right, that's, that's well and good. That's one step further. But what, what's actually, what are, the, what are the, the components of that? Well, first of all, you need to get planning for a number of units so that it matches your plans and, and you can get the GDV you want. Um, you'd have to be able to, to, uh, to, to get, get the building ready for you. You'd have to be able to do the build on time, on cost, and you'd have to finance the project from end to end. So, so those are sort of the high level assertions or the high level, what would you have to believe that goes into, into, into a project. And, and they will vary from project to project. And you have to actually think about this. You can't just use a template for it um, because some projects are, are more difficult than others. So in, in one example that, that we're working on, uh, we had, uh, it was an old building with squatters in it. Well, one of the big high level uh, assertions we needed to work on was we'd have to be able to get vacant possession, uh, which wasn't a given. So, um, so there are things here that vary from project to project, um, but but that sort of gives you a starting framework where you can start thinking about, okay, what are the things that go into each of these boxes, so to speak. Hmm. I like how granular you get with that as well. So it's taking the top level and then breaking it down. What would have to happen to actually get that? Yeah. And I think drawing it out as a tree can be quite helpful because then you have a way of visualizing it and it'll help you throughout the project as you check off each of the things you need to do. It'll help you very quickly gain an overview of what are the things that are left that I still need to address. Um, So you can use it as a working document as you go along as well. I really like that. I think everybody should just take take a second and let that sink in to draw it out as a tree. I think that's a really... That's a golden nugget right there, isn't it? For people to listen to and, and to think about and to really, like you say, to, to plan it out like that and then you can see what's left. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like so from there, you have a lot of base information and you move on to step two, which is? That's the assertions. So <clears throat> once you have the high level, what would you have to believe? What you put underneath this, and this is where we get it quite a bit more granular, is the assertions that would have to be true for the, um, for the, for the step above to be valid or for, for that to, to turn out to be true. So for example, in, 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 this, in this project, uh, one of the things that we, that we had to do, well, we needed to get planning um, uh, and 
uh, acquire with six months delayed completion for 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 us to to have the the, the money for the planning that's specific to that project. But you'd also need to have uh, get planning for each unit would have to have sufficient value to reach the GDB because it's not good good enough just to get planning. You also need to get planning for a certain number of units and you also need to get planning for a certain type of units and a certain value of units in order to get your GDVs. And then, of course, you also need to assert things like CIL, Section 106, affordable housing provisions, all of those things. So there's a lot of, uh, of assertions that go into uh, into the high level what would you have to believe of just getting planning for enough units um, um, similarly for the for the financing well you you'd, you'd one of the assertions would uh, would be I can raise equity of I can raise X amount of equity for this project and I can raise X amount of debt for this project and uh, I'll get enough time to 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 do it end to end and I'll be able to pay it back at the end so those are the next level down assertions where you where you become quite a lot more granular and quite specific. Um, one of the things that's really important about the assertions is that it's it's very easy to get it's very easy to get stuck into it and just write out everything. But the, the important thing is here is to be a little bit eighty twenty, i.e., focusing on the stuff that really matters, and and sense checking each of your assertions and say, does this actually change the conclusion or not? I.e., if this is not true. Does that mean I don't go ahead with the project or not? Uh, because if it, if it doesn't change your con your final conclusion, then you shouldn't have it as an assertion because then you're doing too much work and you won't have time for that and, you, and you're not using your time as, as, as optimally anymore. So that's two steps in and you've already given two incredible <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> See, I told you you'd be good. Very good. <laughs> and for me, one of the things that, that has always set you apart from many others that I have seen is where you define the questions. And you do seem to have this knack of, of answering a question before the question comes up. I don't know how you do it, but you seem to do it. And it's, it's like poetry in motion. <laughs> well, I think, I think that comes a little bit back to how you present your results at the end, because if you, <clears throat> if you think about, if you're presenting to investors, if you can put yourself in their shoes and, and think about their questions before you present to them, then by the time you get in front of them, you will already have an answer to all the questions. And ideally, it would be in such a way that your materials uh, that, you, that they read before your meeting actually answers all of the questions because that way your meeting can become about uh, the investment decision rather than the due diligence <clears throat> and that's quite powerful when you go to meetings and when you meet with investors. Um, if you can focus on the investment decision, then it becomes much more about do they like you, do they trust you, do you have rapport, all those other things. Whereas if it's about <clears throat> due diligence, that can stop the project or that can stop the meeting right there because you're asking, <clears throat> they'd be asking, you know, simple questions that you don't have a factual or factual questions that you don't have an answer to. And, and then the meeting just stops because, oh, I don't know. And then you're like, well, okay, well, then go and find out and then come back, right? So if you can answer all the questions up front, then you'll be in very good shape once you, once you meet with your investors. Yeah, I echo that point as well. Because I think when we're meeting investors, the sort of two things that we want to, to do when we are meeting the investors, we want to come across as knowledgeable in our area of expertise and we also want to build rapport and doing both of those things at the same time is quite difficult 
Um, and what you do really well is show that you are very knowledgeable and you're answering those questions before they're thinking about them. So like you say, when they, when you come to the meeting with them, they've already got a really good base understanding of where you're coming from and your thought process. Yeah. So it's, then it's down to building that rapport and then going from there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, that's crucial. Mm. Um, because if if you if you haven't if you don't have the answer to a basic question that one of your investors can come up with, then you've undermined yourself uh, from the get go, because yeah. you haven't thought of something that that they have thought of, and assuming of course it's a relevant question and, and valid question. Yeah. But 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 the problem is if you if you go to them and they answer something or ask something that you don't have an answer to, you're the one who spent a lot of time on this. And and they've only spent ten minutes on it. If you if they can think of something you haven't thought of, and then the chances of them regaining confidence in you is uh, very slim. Mm. And for you as well, that must be a nightmare meeting. Then just think about that pure dread and horror <laughs> of being sat there thinking, "Oh no, absolutely, oh, no. absolutely, I've just blown this." And now, how long is this going to go on for? Like if it doesn't go out, I mean, there is no winning situation there, is there? Because the investor cuts the meeting short because they're like, well, you know, like you've just said, they've spent hours on this and I've literally read it for 10 minutes. So I'm not going to waste any more time with them. Yeah. Or they drag that process out for the next 20, 30 minutes. And you're just sat there like, I just want the world to open up a hole and swallow. <laughs> yeah, that, that is pretty much the worst situation um, imaginable. Well, there are worse things in the world, but uh, but it is in that context. I would say that's probably one of the worst situations you'd get into. Yeah. Just on a side note, as well, with the way that that this is presented, do you find that when you show this to investors before you meet them, that when you meet them, there is a more of a streamlined process to that meeting? So it's the meeting has a timeline and it has a, a has an agenda. Absolutely, absolutely. I I think. Um, Generally, I I include the the due diligence framework in the investor pack so they can see what we've gone through. It's usually yeah. just an appendix because all of this is um, your investors wouldn't necessarily see it. They probably wouldn't appreciate it either. Uh, they will yeah. appreciate that you know and that you've gone through all of it, but but that will come out through the story you tell in in your pack, right? Where you where you have, you're basically interleaving all of these facts that you've found and all of these things, because they're such an each of them is a super super important part of the investment thesis, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't be looking at it. So um, so every single assertion is a very very important part of the thesis and is part of telling that story. Um, so when you when you have a, a a project where you say, well, we're going to get planning for 10 units, you need to, and here's my GDV, you need to actually say, well, why do we think we can get planning for 10, 10 units? What's the backup for assuming that? And and why do we think this GDV, what is the value of these units? Are they the right sizes and the right types, et cetera? Um, so all of that goes into, into your presentation. So uh, the framework is, the due diligence framework is a way for you to remember to get through it all and make sure that you cover everything. And then once you've covered everything, you have it in your mind. And then you, as you, as you prepare your investment pack, that's the, or your investor pack, that's when, that's when it all comes back to you and becomes really, really helpful. Wow. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. (laughs) That is very, very good. I like that. 
So then the next step from here, is that where you start calling in the experts? There's actually, uh, there's actually one step in between, and that's defining the questions and actions you need to take from that point on. So once you have your assertions, then you need to couple those assertions to questions and, action, and actions. So questions can be, well, um, um, how do I go about the planning process? And then you have some actions around that to say, okay, well, first of all, you need to find a, a qualified planning consultant. You need to follow up, find some architects. You need to find, you need to talk to the local planning authority if you can. There are a number of things there. So, so you have to make it actionable. So basically, uh, one we would typically have is, well, you need to um, confirm the unit values. Well, how do you do that? Well, first of all, you need, you need to have an idea of what type and style and size of units you have. And then you need to go out and talk to agents. You need to go out and look at sold values. And that can confirm your unit values and therefore help you confirm your GDV. Um, from a planning perspective, well, speaking to a planning consultant who knows the area, who knows, ideally, who knows the building, Mm. or who knows the, the plot you're looking at but but definitely someone who, know, who knows the area and knows the local plan and can give some some initial guidance there is not going to be it's never going to be a hundred percent you're never going to mm. get the full answer but you're going to get a lot more than than just saying oh we'll get planning that's fine right? yeah <clears throat> which is one of the things you hear sometimes <laughs> yeah. um, so so make sure that you you you, you outline all of the all of these actions so that you can go out and figure out what you need to do next mm. um, i really like that one i've spoke to <laughs> i've spoke to agents before and they've gone oh don't worry about it you'll get planning and you go um no you can't just tell me that i need to be <laughs> able to to go and speak to to somebody before i put an offer forward or i even consider buying this because yeah you don't know that i will get planning or they the typical one is oh well we spoke to the planning um the planning department and they said yeah you know you probably get something and you're like yeah. um no 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 no. be specific with me yeah. what, what exactly did they tell you oh yeah well they'd like to convert it into residential no 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 yeah please yeah. Let, have an actual grown-up conversation with me and tell me exactly what they said um and even then, I would I would say that's not. I mean, you, I would never trust. Um, oh, never trust something that comes from some from secondhand sources, right? You'd need to get to the yeah. source yourself because oh, the devil is in the detail, right? And yeah. and I found speaking with the local planning uh, authority is really really helpful. So when you can do that, absolutely do it because they don't. I mean, uh, while they, they seem to sometimes like uh, <laughs> declining planning permissions, it, that's not what they like to do, right? They like to get mm. stuff done. So if you can go to them beforehand and say, hey, I want to work with you to create something that works for you and works for me, if you take that approach, then people are generally quite willing to help and, and give you their time and give you their input. And, and they can tell you some things that, that save views hours of research, um, mm. say, well, you've got to be aware that this area is whatever, the building next door listed and, and there's three preservation orders on the boundary. So you can't build up to the boundaries like, Oh, well, that's quite good to know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So as so I'd say, always go to the, always go to the source to the extent that you can and, mm -hmm. and always make sure that you hear, hear it firsthand and really have that in-depth conversation and question all of the, all of the things that are in between the lines and implicit. Um, mm -hmm. Make sure you really understand what's going on. Otherwise you, you're taking a risk basically.
Yeah, and it's always about protecting that downside. Absolutely. Just on that, just on that note about the local uh, planning, I literally go to my local planning authority all the time. Um, before I've even viewed a building or a building plot most of the time. Sometimes I go in with a list of about five or six things. And you mentioned the point of going to see, getting in there and, and speaking to them because they will give you a lot of information. And I found that, you know, that they've got the, they're working on the plan all the time. And if they're coming up with a new plan of that area or whatever, if it's in a development area or whatever, but you get that information firsthand and then they give you the angle of what they would actually like to see in that area. Um, and it just reaffirms your potential decision to put flats in that area or to build houses in that area or et cetera, et cetera, or whether you can build up to the boundary or not. So I think that's a really important point for people listening that if you can get into your local planning authority, then definitely do it and build those relationships they don't always want to turn stuff down. <laughs> no, that's not what they're there for. I don't think they enjoy it more than, more than we do. Um, but the same thing applies with everything else around you, right? So if you are yeah. building something to, send, to sell to a social housing provider, for example, well, you get to know them before you even start the project and, and you, you, you want to know what they want. You want to know what specifics they're looking for because that can be the difference of you being able to sell your whole development or being stuck with it. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so you need to know all these things before you before you put in an offer, or at least before you you sign on the on the exchange, uh, because once you 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 exchange, you're hooked, right? So yeah, that's it. Then you're committed, and then you could be left literally holding the baby. Absolutely, that you can't, that you can't get rid of. And it's just, I think, property is so much about personal relationships. It's crazy the amount of different people that we interact with in different sectors all the time it just it genuinely does amaze me about all of the, the architects the consultants the agents the planning department vendors it's just such a vast array of people isn't it yeah absolutely it is just crazy so then going from there what is the next step for you yeah, so the next step is, well, we've, we've always already touched on it a little bit, but that's when you start calling. That's when you pick up the phone and, and, and start calling people, um, bringing in the experts. So that can be anything from, you know, local planning consultants, um, local planning authority. Yeah, you'd call utility providers to understand what it costs to put in services. Uh, you'd, under, you'd call architects, uh, ideally three of them, to find out, what do they think? Find find the guy who's looked at this site before, because he'll put yeah. planning uh, plans, old plans in his drawers, and he can tell you why they didn't pass planning. Uh, and and you know, the, the stuff like that's out there, and it's gold, and it's not that hard to find. It, it is literally a, a matter of of uh, of picking up the phone and, and start calling people, and, and and generally people are quite willing to help. Um, yeah. Um, and, and it's a long list. I mean, it's not just one or two people. It's five people. And it's uh, quant surveyors, it's builders, it's architects. It's, yeah, grade two listed. If it's a listed building, you want to call the grade two listed guys who knows all about listed buildings and what it takes. And you want to call the, the conservation officer of the council. Um, all of those things need to be sorted um, and need to be found out. Mm. And then I, that, I suppose then that goes back to your questions and your actions as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Each, each of your actions and questions on your, on your long list is basically, um, you know, two or three or four phone calls for each of them. 
so that you make sure that you cover it fully. And <clears throat> the general rule I use is that <clears throat> that as you keep that as you talk to people, you make I, I always make very copious notes, and then you always keep track of any new points or any new questions that come up, mm-hmm. and then you basically keep calling uh, new people in the with with the same background, so to speak, and you keep going until there's no more new information that comes out. So that in each call, it's basically just you're verifying the information you already have. And, and, and when you reach that point, when there's nothing new coming up, that's when you know you've, you've made enough calls. Mm. Couple of things I really like there. Um, utility providers. It's one of the, it's one of the biggest issues with development. And the fact that you, you mentioned that, that you ring them ahead of schedule and ask them what it's going to cost to put the utilities in, in that area. That's a big key one. And then the other one, which I really like, is that you ring arch- the three architects and even you want to find one who's looked at the building before. Now that is, you've mentioned some serious gold on this podcast already. That is for me, probably my favorite. That is the key thing. I'm going to actually start doing that because you mentioned it. They, they're going to know why that building got rejected. Yeah. Which you can then, if you've got that relationship with the council, the planners, et cetera, et cetera, you know why it was rejected that could all form part of your edge. Um, yeah. Really, really like. When it comes to your questions and actions, is there a tool that you have to keep these notes organized or to keep like a checklist or how do you note them down? Is it on paper or is it in the cloud? Yeah, so <clears throat> so I have my due diligence framework next to me when I'm calling because that has all of the all of the actions and questions, um, and then uh, generally I, I I create a question guide. So, for example, when I need to speak to um, to architects for about a certain building or a certain part, then I have a list of questions already prepared that I want to go through, and then uh, and that's just in a work document. And then as I talk to them, uh, as we speak, I write notes in Word right next, next to the questions i'm I've, that's something you have to practice but i've practiced quite a lot because i've been doing it, it quite a lot um so you basically write down everything they say and the reason and you and you almost have to be verbatim when you write when you write stuff down because mm-hmm. in the conversation there will be things that come out that you don't think about at the time but that become yeah. really, really important later on and you yeah. want them to go back to that conversation look what was it exactly what was it exactly that that person said about that? Because that can be super crucial. Yeah. Uh, and then at the same time, as you speak, in that document, I at the bottom, I, I add new questions that come up. So when I think about something, when, some, when the other person is in flow and talking about something, if, I, if a question pops up in my mind, I then write it out at the bottom to make sure I come back to it at the end. Um, to make sure I cover everything. And then <clears throat> I think there are two things that are quite important um, as you do these, these uh, I call them expert calls, but as you do them, uh, the, the first thing is, of course, to build enough rapport so that you can always come back to them later. So you ask them literally, hey, would it be okay if I call you back at a later stage if once we've looked or gone a little bit further? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's a really important thing. And it also ends, ends up ends the conversation on a nice note and, and you have permission to call back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the other thing that I find very, very powerful is uh, the last question I always ask before rounding up is, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you yet? Um, because by asking a completely open-ended question like that, you, mm-hmm. you, you basically get the other person to think through the conversation you've had 
and then they will come up with the, with the things that hey we should also have talked about this because that's actually quite important and even though it's a minor thing it's usually it's usually even though it's a side note it's usually yeah. not not minor it's usually something that's like oh yeah that's the deal changer isn't it yeah, yeah exactly right um, there uh, and that's that's super powerful i had it recently where i was talking to a building rex guy about he was, he was we were just finishing off the building rex on the building we'd finished and and then i said to him sort of in a side note that oh by the way we have to replace some of the roof and he was like oh you do know you need building rex for that right and building control for that i was like oh no i didn't actually <laughs> so it, it's it's really small things that sometimes come out of of uh, of you know casual remarks um but, yeah. but it can be quite significant so uh, so definitely worth asking that question at the end. It always, uh, and if nothing else, it's a very good way to sort of, to sort of end the conversation. And 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 people always have to take stock, uh, to have to stop and sort of really think. And it's generally, it's it's quite an interesting. Uh, it it builds rapport as well in that question because it shows yeah. you're genuinely interested in learning everything they know about whatever you're talking about. So it's quite so a powerful. Just- so just repeat that question one more time for the listeners so they can write this down. Of course. So the question I use is, uh, is there anything I should have asked that I haven't asked you yet? Yes. I like that. So moving on to the next step from there, then where do you go? Well, that's, that's essentially, that's essentially a rinse and repeat. So as you, you basically, from the conversations, you expand on your questions and actions and your due diligence framework. And then once you've, once you've covered one question fully, i.e. you don't learn anything new, that's when you, I, I mark it green on my list, so I know that it's done and it's, it's completed in, in a positive manner. Uh, and then you move on to the next question. And at some point, there will be no more uh, uh, so there's these black questions on your list they'll all be either red or green and and that's when you know you're done and that's when you uh, that's when you then take stock of everything you've learned and and basically say okay should i proceed with this project or not because uh, you should you should know everything at that point and it'll be much more it'll be much less mechanical than that so to speak it'll be much more intuitive because you are so far into the subject matter that it'll be you will know whether it's it's right or wrong or so to speak whether it's a go or no go mm, you'll have all of the information there in front of you collected and and you'll know whether to go on it i really like that that is a nice system to follow is there any tools that you would recommend or that you use that can help with that process a telephone i i i i i you know i i did this professionally for a year uh, back to back and and um, and there was only and and there is no i mean your telephone is a friend i mean really get used to using your telephone get used to that etiquette and get used to winning people over on the phone but 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 that is the most most powerful tool in your arsenal um all spreadsheets and all that stuff it it, it's yeah nothing compares to to to, you know it's people it's people and little things that you've said about you know i'm very much a people person and i i want to get on the phone have you ever gone into your your phone i don't know if you've got an iphone but i know with mine i can go into it and see the battery usage and (laughs) where i've actually used the most battery and it is like always always the top two are always instagram and the telephone 
always. <laughs> I haven't actually taken the time to do that. But I did at some point have one of those uh, thousand minutes a month deal. And I was yeah. doing due diligence on a new project. And, and in, in five days, I'd spent uh, 17 hours or a thousand minutes on, on my phone. Well, um, so it's, it's, it's literally, it's, uh, I've, yeah, when, when we're in due diligence mode on a new project, it's usually six hours a day on just on the phone. Do you find as well that that helps get you more deals because people know you? And they know the kind of things that you're asking. They know the kind of things that you're looking for. So when they come across something, they ring you up instead of you ringing them up to quiz them about a question. I think um, that's, a, that's a hard question to answer. I think what it does is that it makes you very, very credible. And it mm. makes people uh, trust that whatever you say is, is valid. Um, and and it, so it helps you when you negotiate because when you go back to the vendor and say, well, the reason I can only pay this much for your site is because of this, 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 and this issue. And here, here, here are the people who told me these issues are there. And and the vendor can, can be frustrated with that, but usually you'll know much more than they do and they can't really argue against it. Um, and the same thing with agents. When you go back and say to the agent that, yeah, I know the asking price is this, but the actual value is actually this because of these, these things here, um, that, that tends to uh, impress, in, but in a, in a very positive manner. It mm. tends to make you very, stand out as very, very serious and much more credible than, than, uh, than, uh, than the people who just shoot from the hip and, and, and say, come up with random numbers, right? I've noticed that and that's something that that we do as well I mean it's a question that a lot of people ask is well I really want to buy this site and the vendor has said that they want x which might be a million for example but I can only get to sort of 700 and I don't know why the vendor thinks that and I always say well the way I do that is literally exactly what you've just said. The reason I can only pay X is because of this, 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 and this. And these people have said that as well. And then yeah. you come from a much more informed place. And then I'm more than happy to walk away from that deal. Exactly. If, someone wants, if someone wants to pay more than, than I physically feel it, it is, then fair enough. Yeah. yeah. That's in my mind, how you see sites that start and then they run out of money or whatever and then you can end up picking them up yeah. a few months later yeah um because they've overpaid initially uh, i think uh, i think an important point there is also and and a side effect or an additional bonus of doing your due diligence to that level is that there's no doubt in your mind there, yeah. there's no when you go in and offer 700 and someone wants a million and and they say no can we do 850 or or, or you know 800 then he's like well no because yeah. here it is I mean it's just it just is what it is the numbers don't lie and you have so much backup for your numbers that that you are not easy to push around and you're not and and you can sort of put it in front of them and, and say it and yes it may mean that you won't take, get the deal but rather do that than get a deal that you lose money on right yeah exactly and I always refer back to my Betfair trading and I always tell all of my traders there will always be another trade and it do you know what i brought that into property that approach and that mindset there'll always be another deal like there will always 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 be another deal i don't get emotional about the property deals and the property transactions because if i am doing the due diligence on a deal and i've got all the way and i put all of that work in and 
I've made that offer to the vendor and they've gone, no, I want 850. Can you go 850? And they go, no, it, it doesn't matter to me. I just move on to the next one yeah. and the next one. It's just, I'm not going to compromise the, the profit and the risk just to satisfy that person. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> no, I think that's, that's right. And, and giving you that fundamental certainty about where you stand is, is very, very powerful, uh, both for yourself, but also for how you project yourself um, in, in the negotiations. Mm. I think, and in typical Thomas fashion, you have already answered um, one of my questions. So <laughs> need to, to go there. And it's all about the protection of the downside. And you've gone into so much detail about the, the questions and the actions and the speaking to people. So then you've got these questions that start off black and then they go red or green. Yeah. I think that is just such a nice process. And um, I do actually have a question for you though. Are mm -hmm. you ready? Mm -hmm. So Thomas, is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? <laughs> <laughs> um uh, good question well we haven't we, we haven't uh, we haven't touched much about on the on the on the whole thing about downside protection because um, the due diligence helps you identify the risks and the costs uh, of a project and the downside protection is much more about how you structure the deal so that so that you either have multiple exits or even that you that you uh, can basically postpone the entry. Um, so with an option or, you know, a delayed completion or subject to planning or subject to whatever. So I think, I think that's a very key uh, skill to learn in thinking about how you remove the downside to the, to the largest extent possible uh, on any project, any investment project you go into. Um, and I saw recently, I, I heard a book, or I was listening to an audiobook or read somewhere that when you when you sort of go out and interview sort of the key the really really big investors out there like the Warren Buffetts and the Ray Dalios and those guys for them it's all about downside protection um, it's all about not risking um, uh, risking a loss you can come out with nothing but don't risk a loss because uh, I think the example was there. Well, if you lose 50%, if you start with a hundred and lose 50%, well, then you're at 50. That means you need to make a hundred percent return just to get back to zero or back mm. to your starting point. So I think uh, thinking in terms of downside protection and thinking in terms of, of avoiding risk and avoiding especially downside risk is, uh, is quite, quite important. Something to really, really think about in, in all your projects and whatever you get into. Mm. that's one of those things that I don't think is actually spoken about enough in the property world. Uh, something that I didn't even realize I did. I just did it automatically. Yeah. I've, so many things from my, my trading life have, have come over to, to property. And, and you know what? They're real seasoned pros, like mainly the, the sort of ex-banking, ex-private equity people like yourself. I did an interview with Manish as well. Um, Kataria, who's yeah. very similar, and it's all about the downside protection, and it's just it should be covered so much more. I mean, I would actually like to get you back on, and we just do a whole hour on downside protection. You know, I structuring certain deals, whether it's like you say the delayed entry, what would yeah. you do? How would you pitch that to to somebody? Because I think that I think that that could be a whole series on its own. Yeah. Probably, probably yes probably yes i think it's about being very 
aware, risk aware, and, uh, and, and then being super flexible in your mindset and really, really thinking outside of the constraints uh, of, of conventional thinking. Um, and then obviously, I mean, it, it helps if the market is a little bit tight so there, aren't, so there aren't a lot of competition because if someone is willing to come in and pay cash up front, then, you know, that's very hard to compete with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> especially if they're paying more than you are right so um yeah. i think i think um but definitely being flexible and being really aware of what what are the parameters you can change to to mitigate your downside risk maybe that's where you where it'd be a good place to start the conversation is having a brainstorm on what are actually all the things you can do because it's it's vast there's so many things you can change oh. really, so many parameters you can work on uh, vendor financing, delayed completions, uh, subject twos, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There are so many dimensions there that you can you can work on to get to get the downside protection you need in a project. Mm, I think that's that is very that is key, and then that's something that me and Kim do on an almost daily basis. We we both sit in the office and we we go over literally every single way of trying to pull the deal. Um, you know and then being as flexible as you can and then thinking about protecting that downside and it's quite nice the the way that we do it with me being more sort of tech savvy and i'm typing it up or getting it out in a spider diagram or a chart or whatever i'm doing and then i look over and kim's using like a notebook that he got free from the british damp proofing (laughs) place and he's literally sticking these pieces of paper together to create a bigger mind map and i'm there like with my two screens firing it away but i love the way that we do that because that's completely different so we don't yeah. get to the same answer the same way yeah so thomas for you what's next then i mean we're looking at we're looking at bigger projects now um we, we're going to start to move into sort of ground up developments um which we've we haven't done yet uh, but we have a few in the pipeline now and, and looking to move forward on that and then i think uh, yeah slowly scaling up from that but taking it uh, step by step so uh, you know um, start with three units then eight units then you know maybe up to 15 20 units but uh, again making sure uh, it's all about risk right it's all about risk management mm-hmm. so uh, i think the whole industry is about the risk management to be honest um, and uh, so i don't want to i don't want to overextend um, so so quite cautious around that um, but uh, 2018 looks like it'll be a good year to uh, to uh, acquire new sites in i think yeah i think that's a key point that you make about overextending i see a lot of the time you know people overextending taking on a lot of projects at one go um i had a conversation recently with somebody and they were talking to me about the the wildlife development that we're doing and they said oh you got to pull another one now and it's got to be bigger and i was like nah that'll probably be the biggest development i do i'll probably actually step down um development size after this one to be honest yeah um, just for for many many reasons but yeah i think I wish you all the best in 2018. I know it'll be a good year for you. So we have come to the last three questions in which I ask absolutely everybody. Mm -hmm. So question number one, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind and why? Well, I think, I think um, Elon Musk is one of the people who come, who come to top of my mind when we're talking about successful, because he's been incredibly 
skilled at uh, making some really big things happen and making some real impact on the world for a positive, uh, for a positive way. Um, whether I think he's ultimately successful in, I think he'll be very successful commercially and in his ventures, but I think also, uh, I think I'm, I'm not sure I agree with his, his lifestyle and his, uh, the amount of hours he worked and the, and the, um, and the style in which he works, I don't think that would apply to me. So I think uh, commercially, I'd say he's very, very successful. Um, Lifestyle-wise, I'm not so sure. So when you think of that, I'm just going to ask another question. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think of the word successful, then for you, what does that encompass? Well, I think it's 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 achieving your goals. So if you sort of if you look at it in an objective fashion or, or sort of philosophical fashion, it's about achieving your goals, right? So it depends on for whom. Um, so success is going to be different people for different or different things for different people. But I think it's about for me personally, it's about the combination of achieving something, basically creating something and adding something positive to the world, uh, while at the same time maintaining a good uh, uh, balance between work and life, and and having time with my children and showing them the world and showing them that it's a cool place to be. Mm. I completely agree. It's exactly the same for me. There's no point just earning loads and loads of money if you can't actually have a good work-life balance exactly able to i've well i've always said i would rather earn no money or limited money and be happy than earn loads of money and be miserable Um, absolutely i lost absolutely everything right now i'd probably go back to to trading well i'd still trade on betfair so i'd continue to do that but even if that stopped i was when i was 16 i used to push trolleys at asda i'd go back to doing that because i was happy yeah Uh, don't know if i'd be happy now doing that but well well, maybe you should try that for a month see what happens (laughs) (laughs) oh man i think i'm probably unemployable right now yeah Uh, after all these years of being self-employed and question number two is a question i've started to do a competition as well so regular listeners will know that if you share this podcast link on facebook you will be entered into the competition to gain a copy of not just the book that thomas is going to tell us about but every other book for the rest of this month that's gone and i'm going to do that month on month so thomas what is the book that's had the biggest impact on you um it, it's an it's a it's a fun question i think the um well we've all we've all all read rich that well most people have read rich that nah. at least in this world right i'm um, the only one who hasn't <laughs> you haven't read it yet interesting no and i i don't want to now no fair enough i think it's probably spoiled for you by this point yeah. um what i found was they there's a there was an after that book um so the book was actually written as a as a guide to the board game that he was creating at the time. And what's interesting after the book, there's another, uh, there's a book and also an audio series called choose to be rich, um, which I, I thoroughly dislike the branding. I thoroughly dislike the whole way that it's set up, but the content of that, audio series was uh, was really something that changed changed my life and then both for myself and for my wife uh, we listened to it you know three or four times while driving and and it really every time we listen to it again it, you get some new perspectives on things and it's it's um, it's quite interesting it's quite long but it's very very profound and it's very um, it it will make you see things in a different light so uh, yeah so that's definitely had a very concrete impact 
I like that. I like that. That's different as well to to the uh, to the standard the standard answer. But yeah, I don't think I'll ever read Rich Dad Poor Dad. Now it's. Uh... <laughs> well, it's I don't think there's a need for you to read it. The interesting yeah. thing is that Rich Dad Poor Dad sort of it it opens your mind to some things and sort of opens the gap a little bit. But then yeah. this next book, The Choose to Be Rich. Or no, it's not even. I think it's just an audio series, but that takes it sort of. If, if Rich Dad Poor Dad sort of changes your your view by about fifteen degrees, if you imagine a compass circle, then mm. choose to be rich will move you sort of somewhere between yeah forty five and ninety degrees, um, if not more. So it has it's much more impactful and much more detailed, and has many of the facets that's missing of the in the original Rich Dad book. Mm. So somebody may win that. Whoa, that would be interesting. And the last question before I get let you go is, what is the worst advice you see or hear in the property world? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I think, I think uh, uh, it's really hard for me to answer. I think that there's a lot of good to be said about taking action. And I think that's great. I think what a lot of people forget, um, especially in, in training circles, is the whole thing about, well, you need to take controlled action and you need to make sure you, you watch your downside and watch your risk. Because it is, it is a, 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 I mean, property is a high is a high stakes game. It's a lot of, it's a big amount that's moving around, which means that's quite positive because you can, you can earn a lot of money, but it's also quite negative because you can lose quite a lot of money quite quickly. So you have to be very, very cautious and, and, and move with caution and make sure you do your research and do your analysis. So I'd say some of those people who just say, Oh, just do it, just buy it. Mm, um, yeah. Think, think before you act. Um, and, uh, but then, but don't let that keep you from acting. <laughs> well i think you've highlighted a lot of things that people can do to 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 protect that downside and to to go through some of those steps that can help them take controlled action so if people want to get in touch with you where can they contact you um i think i'm easiest to reach by email um thomas at centuryspaces.com um yeah <clears throat> that's the easiest place to find me i think my phone's always uh, busy, as you can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm very lucky I actually caught you. <laughs> what I'll do is I'll pop that email address at the bottom of the, the podcast notes as well so everybody can That's fine, get yeah. hold of you. And I'd just like to say on behalf of myself and absolutely everybody listening, I'm sure they got a lot from that. Thank you for, for coming on and being so brilliant, Thomas. Brilliant. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.